Lord, as you invite us to pray, you do so because of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for he is not ashamed to call us brothers. But as we come before the throne of grace, we do so in Jesus' name, because in him we are your children. So teach us to pray at all times, for all things, always trusting that because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, you hear us as our dear Father, for we are your dear children. So now we ask you, dear Father, to send your Spirit, that we might have wisdom as you read these words of John, and that by the wisdom of Spirit we might see our Savior, Jesus, and trust in him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, John 4 is a fun chapter. You know it very well. Um, this is one of those chapters that most people in the world know, even if they don't know the Bible that well. This is the this is the Samaritan woman at the well. So the woman at the well, there's lots of artwork about this. There's always lots of sermons about this. There's lots of, um, there's music written about it. Um, people misquote it all the time, which is really fun. Um, but it's a story all known well, so we'll go through it and we'll probably do it a little differently than you're used to. So, any questions on John 3 or on Colossians that you've been thinking about that you'd like to ask? Or anything else that's happened in your life that you wonder about? Yes. Okay, so the, so the convention, um, I, that's, that's a good question. So the convention, you, just so you guys know, the, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that's the church body that we all belong to. Well, this congregation belongs to, and you all belong to this congregation, so you're all part of it. Um, the Lutheran Church, Missouri, Missouri Synod meets every three years in convention, and this convention basically sets the agenda for the next three years, and also um, kind of deals with any issues we might have, including doctrinally, practically, or whatever. So... Um, the presidential election happened before the convention, so we go into the convention knowing our president was elected. It was Matt Harrison who was re-elected, so that was good. Um, and so then the, ba- the major issues going forward were, there weren't a lot of big things is kind of the issue. Um, it was really a calm convention. There wasn't a lot of contention. There wasn't a lot, a lot of fighting or anything. It was just, not that there usually is, so there's a lot of debate sometimes, but there wasn't much. Um, our Senate is moving forward with a couple different initiatives. We're, we're going to do a lot of work on recruiting church workers because there is, as Pastor said today in, in, in his announcements or in his sermon, that we're facing a, a shortage of pastors. We're also shorting of, facing a shortage of teachers and church workers. So um, there is a church worker initiative that's coming forward out of the convention, which is good. Um, also, we are working on a program... For the national mission, the, the national mission office, which is called Making Disciples for Life, which you're going to hear about, which is um, helping congregations as we look at mission or service opportunities in our communities. How do we kind of come together to pool our resources to say, "Hey, this worked for us. You should try this or whatever." So that's a new initiative coming forward. Also, um, I'm trying to think what else happened. Church fellowship. Yeah, we we. Uh, we are now in church fellow, full church fellowship with new church partners in Denmark, in Belgium, in Portugal, and in South Africa. So we declared new altar and fellowship with them, which means that you can go to church there, and it's like being to church here. They have the same doctrine and practice as we do. Their pastors are in fellowship with us. We're all good with them. Um, we have a list of about 35 church partners. If you want to look on the website, 
lcms.org. If you look at our church partners, you can look at all the church. This is kind of a cool thing to do when you're on vacation. You can look up and see where our church partner is, where you're going, if it's not in America. Overseas church partners is what we're talking about. And you can find a congregation there and go to church. And we did this when we went to Paris, looked up a church, and there was, uh, there was a congregation in downtown Paris that we were actually in fellowship with, and we went. And it was crazy fun. It was in French, but, you know. But actually, you know, the girls said, we could follow along just fine. I know French just wasn't a problem, but but um, you can, the liturgy is very similar. You know, you have some of the same hymns, and the, obviously the theology is the same, so it's it's fun. So that was a big thing, is to celebrate fellowship with that. Yes? Was it, would that be like the Church of Denmark or the Church of... It's the Lutheran Church of Denmark, um, the Lutheran Church of Belgium, I think it's the Lutheran Church of Portugal, and then it's the Confessing Lutheran Evangelical Church of South Africa, I think it is. You have to look it up. Because there's I would guess that just like other European churches, that there's some factions of Lutheranism. Yes, very much so. Uh, especially in the Scandinavian countries where Lutheranism is the state religion. We're not in fellowship with any of the churches that are state-run churches because their theology is not biblical. So these are the church bodies that we're in fellowship with in Scandinavian countries are usually smaller churches that are broken off from the main church and are... And the reason they've broken off is because they want to maintain correct doctrine and practice. Um, so that's one of the reasons it's important for us to, to be in fellowship with them is, is one, that we can encourage them and their faith to remain strong, but also they encourage us, right, to remain strong and, and confessional in our stance, that we don't just kind of drift along with whatever's going on. So that's a big thing. Um, what else? What else happened? We sang a lot, we prayed a lot, we had sermons every day, and, and um, we had papers given, so lectures given every day, which was great, and then we also elected other positions. So we have a new first vice president, um, the Kansas district president is going to be the first vice president, so he'll be moving to St. Louis. I feel really bad. I talked to him, I said, I'm sorry, you have to leave Kansas for this place. And, uh, <laughs> it's like, we've been there, we've been there. If you need some, someone to talk to, you know. I've made the transition myself. It's okay. Kansas is close. So, yeah, but lots of good things. It was a very positive convention. Um, it was very, it was actually kind of fun in a lot of ways. As much fun as voting on resolutions can be. But it was good. Okay, any other questions? You can look it all up online, basically, believe it or not. Um, even some of my stories. But if you go to lcms.org, that's our church's website. That's our church body's website. And then look at convention. You can read everything that happened, literally minutes from every session. So, Okay, so any other questions? Okay, John 4. Let's just read it, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump back and forth in John so we can remember where we are. So let's read John 4, verses 1 through 6. Well, 
Okay, thank you very much. So why are we talking about baptism again? The Pharisee had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Why are we talking about baptism again? When did we talk about baptism before? Good, John the Baptist. So go back to chapter 1, right? So go back to chapter 1, verse 25. One twenty-five. they asked him, meaning John the Baptist, why are you baptizing? That's what John the Baptist was doing. That's why he got the name Baptizing John, because he was baptizing, right? So then, you, then he goes, well... Um, in 31, I myself did not know him, that's Jesus, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Okay? So we have all this baptism stuff and baptism stuff. And then chapter 2, what happens? What's the first thing that happens in chapter 2? What miracle? What into wine? Water. Okay, so we have water, water, right? And then in chapter 3, verse 5, this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 3.5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So again, we have baptism, right? Okay. And then in 3.26, they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you were born witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going after him. Okay, and now in four, we have baptism again. So what is going on with this baptism language? Why is baptism all over the place in the first part of John? Okay, good. We're talking about forgiveness of sins. So if baptism, all over the first couple of chapters of John, we have baptism, y'all know, because you've been catechized correctly, that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, right? So this baptism stuff, we're always talking about forgiveness. Well, where in the Gospel of John does forgiveness actually occur? Where is it one? What does Jesus do to forgive your sins? Remember John 1.29? John, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Where does Jesus take away the sins of the world? On the cross. On the cross. Good. So now, baptism for forgiveness, you've got to find this in the cross. Somehow this forgiveness that is given to you in baptism has to be on the cross. Well, if you're talking cross, go to John 19. Okay? So turn your Bible to John 19. Okay, John 19.34. Okay, so now on the cross, out of Jesus' side, right? So now on the cross, out of Jesus comes water and blood. Now, you guys are Lutherans. You're sacramental. Does that sound familiar at all? How many sacraments are there? Two. What are they? Baptism 
and the Lord's Supper. Right? So what happens is throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to hear a lot about water. We've heard about it in 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're going to hear again in 5. We're going to hear in 7 where he says that, that the, the water that Jesus gives will spring up in people and, and will be the Holy Spirit, right? So in 7 he talks about this water. He's going to keep talking about it over and over and over, all this water imagery. And it's all pointing ahead to the giving of holy baptism, right? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus that gives holy baptism its power, right? Can simple water do such things? Can simple water take away sins and grant you eternal life? No. Well, then how does it how does it work? Right. It is not plain water, but it is water with the word and the command of God. Okay. And what is that word? It's that we were commanded by Jesus that this baptism baptizes us into Christ into his death and resurrection. Okay? So you see what's happening? This is the way John is talking about it. He's pointing his head to the cross of Christ and saying, this baptism is going to be a washing into the forgiveness of sins that Jesus wins on the cross. That's what's going to happen. Okay? And Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. You're baptized into Christ. And your epistle reading for today, Colossians chapter 2, what does it say? You're not going to be circumcised. No, you're baptized. Right? And in the baptism, you're baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul says. Okay? So now what we're going to see, we're, we haven't gotten there yet, but, but remember in chapter 2, he changes water into wine. Okay? So again, we have a little foreshadowing of the other sacrament here. Okay? In John chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But if you want to live, you have to eat and drink my body and blood. And they're all going to freak out. Like, what are you talking about? That's crazy talk. Right? But again, in John 6, now we have this foreshadowing of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. And this is something that the Gospel of John just keeps doing. It just keeps re- rehearsing these themes until it finds its fulfillment at the death and resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay? So just kind of keep these in your mind. When you're, when you're reading the Gospel of John and you see water, don't just go, hmm, it's water. No, think, okay, this is a baptismal theme. This is, this is Jesus making a promise that we know as holy baptism. When you read about wine or blood or body, don't, don't just skip over it. Think, okay, is this a Lord's Supper theme? Is this something that Jesus is pointing us ahead to the Lord's Supper? And where is it, again, it always finds its culmination at the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's going to say. Here it is. Here you go. Now I'm giving it to you. Okay? Does that make sense? Any questions on that or thoughts? I think John is the most sacramental of the Gospels because, you know, it's the best Gospel. But that's just the way it goes. Okay. I have a question. Yes. Go ahead. So why does he leave when he hears this? Okay, good. So the big question is, why does he leave? So he's in Judea, right? He's around Jerusalem. 
And he leaves Jerusalem when he hears this to go to Galilee. And this is a major problem in the Gospels, just because the Gospels go like this at this point. Um, but the reason he leaves, you're going to find this throughout the Gospel of John, is as soon as people figure out what's going on in his ministry, he takes off. As soon as he gets popular, he leaves. As soon as people start wanting to listen to him, what does he do? He leaves. Why? It's not his time yet. And that's what you just that's all we know is that he knows it's not time for him to die in Jerusalem yet. So he's got to get out. He's got to leave Jerusalem lest they either try to make him king or kill him. And he's like, neither one of those is what's supposed to happen yet. I gotta go. Okay? And it's actually very interesting because it the Greek word um, Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of messed up in our translation. It's not it's not a bad translation. You just don't see the Greek as as powerfully. But at the beginning of three, it says it was necessary for him, and that that phrase it was necessary. The verb there it's a nice little verb. It's only three letters. Day. Um, that verb is in the Gospel of John a divine command to Jesus from the Father. So this is actually part of Jesus's mission. It was necessary for him to go do this. So the question is, what was necessary? Was it necessary to avoid something that wasn't his time yet? Or was it necessary to go talk to the Samaritan woman? We don't know. But, but there's something about divine necessity going on here. It's not just an incidental travel note. He got tired of Jerusalem. The scenery got old. So they went, you know, something like that. No, there was a reason he did this. And the best we know is that it wasn't his time to die yet. And it wasn't his time to become king. Which, those aren't two different things, right? We know at the end of the gospel, that's one action. He becomes king by dying. Does that make sense? Why did the Pharisees care? Are they just trying to... Isn't that weird? Brew up trouble? Or? Yeah, well, it seems that, that John's ministry was, was drawing enough attention in Jerusalem the Pharisees were actually freaking out about John the Baptist. They didn't know what to do with him. They couldn't poke any holes in his theology. But he wasn't one of them. And they, they, he knew that the, he, was, he was teaching against them, right? When he, he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the coming around. That's the Pharisees. And they know John the Baptist isn't one of them. And he's teaching against them the things they're saying, but they can't really find anything wrong with what he's saying. So they're kind of freaking out about this guy, John. And now Jesus comes along and he's more popular. But it's the same thread of theology. It's, it's this John's followers, now Jesus' followers, and they're getting more. And so the Pharisees are like, we are losing control of this situation. We got these teachers out here that aren't us, and everyone likes them better. So they're not sure what to do with them. And I, I do believe I am a little different than, than most people on this. I believe the Pharisees found too much in common with them to simply write them off. Because there were other false teachers, the Pharisees were like, they're just stupid, just don't listen to them. But when John and Jesus taught, they're like, I can't really find any fault with their teaching which is why they went after the Sabbath thing for Jesus, right? Remember, the Pharisees don't ever condemn John the Baptist. Who does? Who kills John the Baptist? Herod. Herod. <coughs> right? Herod. And that's only because John was saying, you can't marry your brother's wife, which doesn't seem like this overly radical idea, really. You should know that, but that's what got him killed. Now, the Pharisees, though, were... were... Teaching, preaching, 
sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, correct? So was there a clash there? Well, uh, like I said, this is where I differ a little from, from other scholars necessarily. Um, I think if you read Pharisaic teaching, they did believe that that God forgives out of grace. The problem was they, they were teaching that the only way to have that grace is to, is to keep the, the Ten Commandments. Okay? So what the Pharisees did is they said, yeah, God is gracious. He's, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's his characteristic of the Old Testament. But they said the only way to get that grace is to never break these Ten Commandments. So what they did is they made, they made all these levels of protection around the Ten Commandments, right? So um, you're not supposed to kill. So, so what we do is we make, we make all these rules so that if you broke this rule, you still haven't broken this rule. And the one that you guys know the easiest on this is, is the Lord's name, right? Second commandment, don't do the Lord's name in vain. So what they say? Just don't ever say it. That way you make sure you never... Say it in vain, okay? Because the focus was to never break these Ten Commandments to ensure that God had to continue to love you if you kept all his laws, right? And this is why Luther's explanation of the commandments in the Catechism are so brilliant because he says it's not about just avoiding sin. It's actually about living out your faith in a positive way, right? So Luther says, yeah, you're right. Don't curse, don't swear, don't lie, don't use satanic arts, don't lie or deceive by his name, but call upon in every trouble. Pray, pray, and give thanks. You are supposed to use the name. You are supposed to say the name Jesus, but not as a curse, but in praise and thanksgiving and prayer, right? So instead of being Pharisees, we're like, well, we're just going to avoid sin and hope that, that our avoidance of sin makes God love us. No, we say, God loves us. How do we live? Right? See, they're really close to being right. They just get it backwards. They just think that forgiveness is as a result of us keeping the Ten Commandments instead of forgiveness being grace that allows us to keep the Ten Commandments. Right? Does that make sense? Just quick review. Ten Commandments, good or bad? Should we follow them? Yes. Are they God's will? Yes. yes. Why do you follow them? What? Because we love God, but more importantly, because God loves us. Right? We keep them as a result of his love for us. Because of this, we do this. We don't do this in order to get his love. We get it because of his love. Right? Because God loves you, you honor him with the way you live. You keep his commandments. Right? Y'all? And you pray, apparently, according to Pastor's sermon. I don't know where that came from. All right, so number two. What is the problem with Samaria? It's full of Samaritans, which is a terrible thing. (laughs) What's wrong with Samaritans? Okay, good. One of the things is they are different in theology than the Jews. And one of the main things is they do not believe in any books of the Bible except for the five books of Moses. Okay, they only believe in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They don't read the rest. They don't read Isaiah. They don't read Jeremiah. The Psalms is kind of weird. They, they 
There is some evidence they used it, but they didn't read it as scripture. Okay, um, but the Samaritan Pentateuch is actually a different translation of the of the Old Testament than we have even. So their scriptures are actually a different text even. Even the five books of Moses were a different text than what the Jews had. What else was wrong with them? They were they are the result of intermarriage with non-Jews, Gentiles. Okay. So, and this is primary, primarily occurred, you guys know this history pretty well, 722 BC, the Assyrians came and took over the northern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. They took all the Jews that had any worth, they took them off to Assyria, right, to use them. And they left behind the non-elite Jews. And what they did is they brought in their own people or other foreign people into that into that area and intermarried with the people so that the result was Samaria was full of half-breeds. Okay, half-Jew, half-Gentile. And that is unclean. You can't do that. Um, if you look back at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, this is actually the problem that Ezra and Nehemiah is written to talk about is this intermarrying between Jews and Gentiles. At the end of, of Ezra, what happens? You have to get rid of all your wives that aren't Jewish. You can't have any. Okay? So this is a major problem is that, is that after this, they are intermarried. So they are not pure. They are half-breeds. They're half-Jewish, half-Gentile. Okay? There's another problem. They also, in four, this is around 400 B.C., They built a temple on Mount Gerizim as a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem. So that you had the temple in Jerusalem for Judaism and you had the one on Mount Gerizim for Samaritan Judaism, which was a mix between Jewish worship and pagan worship. Okay? They combined them and they kind of worshipped a, a combination of the two. Um, the, the, the fun theological word for this is syncretism, where you combine you combine different theologies into one and mix it up and make a new one. Okay, syncretism. So we'll take a little. The way it happens today is someone says, "Well, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a Buddhist." All right. I'm a Christian, but I also embrace the tenets of Hinduism. <coughs> then you go, well, how do you, what? I said, well, they're just the same. You just kind of mix them up and make your own religion out of it. And you go, that's, that's syncretism. Now stop it. <laughs> right? But, but this is not good, right? Does everybody understand that? You can't be Christian and Buddhist. Do you get that? Doesn't matter what this world says. That ain't Right? The whole coexisting, you know what's wrong with it? One, there's only one truth. His name is Jesus. But the other problem is that if you actually follow those religions, they will tell you the other ones aren't right. This whole idea that we're all just worshiping God in different ways, that's fundamentally untrue simply from the tenets of each religion. It's a lie to say you can can take some of some and some of the other. You can't do that. It doesn't work. 
Even logically, it doesn't work. So this is what's happening, though, in, in the Samaria, is they're, they're kind of slamming together religions and making up a new one. Okay? So this happens from 400 B.C. until 200 B.C., when the temple in Mount Gerizim is destroyed by John Herculanus. Okay? And this was to show that the Jews consider the Samaritan worship unclean. So not only are the Samaritans physically unclean as far as their heritage goes of being mixed with Gentiles, but their worship is also unclean. So now think this through for a second. They're unclean as terms of marriage and unclean in terms of worship. Have you read John chapter 4? It's going to talk about marriage and worship. Jesus is talking to the woman well, and he says, go call your husband. Bring him here. And she goes, I don't have a husband. And he goes, I know. You've had five. And the man that you're living with now, that's not your man to live with. And she goes, you're a prophet. And then what did she say next? Since you're a prophet, answer me this. Should we worship here in Mount Gerizim? Or should we worship in Jerusalem? Wait a minute, what? Is that the natural question that you ask somebody when they just exposed your sinful past? Is, hey, where do we worship? No, that doesn't make any sense. The conversation doesn't flow. Except when you understand the issue between Jews and, Jews and Samaritans is marriage and worship. The exact same thing that happens in the conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. Marriage and worship. Okay? So that's the issue. That's what's going on. Um, now remember, in the rest of the Gospels, Jesus says to his disciples, do not go to the Samaritans. I didn't come for them. I only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is another strange thing that Jesus is doing. He's going to where he tells the disciples not to go. And the disciples freak out about this. They're like, why or what? Okay? So we'll get there in a second too. But that's, that's part of the other issue is that they are not part of, of Israel. Okay? But wouldn't they be considered the lost of Israel? Or is it because mm-hmm. of the intermarriage that they're not? Yeah, they're, they've kind of abandoned Israel. Okay. But this is kind of the point of Jesus. Is he saying they are the lost sheep of Israel? which is going to freak people out for a while. But Jesus does this in the Gospel of Luke too, right? So we're trying to figure out who our neighbor is and who is the hero of the parable? The good Samaritan. Samaritan. Okay. And he heals and one comes back to give thanks and that one was Samaritan. Okay, so this does happen in the Gospels where Jesus is like, hey, you know, Okay, so number three. What Old Testament characters are mentioned in this section we just read? Jacob and Joseph. Jacob and Joseph. This is kind of important. Not kind of, this is largely important. Um, Remember, I keep telling you that as when we study Genesis, that Joseph really isn't a major character in the New Testament. He's not really even mentioned, except for like here and a couple of places. But even then, it's it's not the story of Joseph. It's not that he did all these wonderful things. It's just kind of mentioned this guy, right? But Joseph is mentioned, and the big thing here is Jacob. What we're going to look at is Jacob. Now, this whole giving of Jacob to Joseph, you want to look at Genesis 49, verse 22. I think it's 22. 
or I could be making that whole thing up. It might be 4822, now that I'm thinking. Let's go look, shall we? It's at the end of, I'm sorry, it's 4822. 49 didn't seem right to me at all. I think you just put it wrong all together. All right, 4822. Jacob is dying and he's blessing, right? He's blessing everybody. He's blessing Ephraim and Esau, the sons of Joseph. And in 48.22, Jacob says, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my my bow. Okay? That mountain slope is actually very close to Mount Gerizim and next to a well that Jacob dug, which is near the town that people think is Sikar, which is this town. So this from 4822 in Genesis is probably the plot of land that, that the woman in, at the Samaritan woman is talking about that Jacob gave to Joseph. And the fun thing there, well, there's a lot of fun things, but anyway, we won't get into the Hebrew. The Hebrew of that verse is kind of fun. Um, so we have Jacob and Joseph. Now, I want to bring this up to you. This is something that I, I was reading. Um, I've been studying Micah just for no apparent reason, just because it's fun to study Micah, right? Isn't it? But I was studying Micah the other day, and I saw this verse that made me think about John 4. So turn with me, if you can, to Micah. The prophet Micah. Do you know where that is? It's one of the minor prophets, so it's small. Makes it hard to find. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Right? So go to the end of the Old Testament. Micah 1.5. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be totally upfront with you. I looked this up for a week, and I can't find anybody who mentions this verse in connection with John 4. But I'm going to. This is bonus content. I just think this is really curious, and I've never seen this before. Um, like I said, I've never read it. Micah 1.5. I'm hoping you're all going to go, <gasps> when you read it. You probably won't, but I just think it's kind of fun. So Micah 1.5. Micah is written to warn the southern kingdom of Judah about the coming destruction, just like happened in the northern kingdom. Okay, It's kind of the basis of the point of Micah. So it's, it's God's people are in trouble because they're worshiping false gods. And that's the point of chapter 1. So let's read Micah 1 5. Someone read that for me. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? There it is, right? Jacob's transgression is Samaria. That's what we're talking about in this passage. The Samaritan woman talks about Jacob's well. And then the conversation is going to move to. Jerusalem and Judah, right? So here it is in Micah 1, 5. These, these, all these terms kind of calculated in one verse. Where's your... <gasps> there it is, see? Isn't that amazing? So there you go. Is not the transgression of Jacob Samaria? Okay, so now we have the Samaritan woman at the, in Jacob's well. Okay, so all of this is kind of smooshed together. Does that make sense? No. No? What was Jacob's it was the false worship of Samaria that she started, that Samaria worshiped false gods. So remember, Jacob, remember that? Jacob is Israel. His name was changed. Yeah? 
So when after Solomon, the, the, the kingdom of Israel was split into two regions, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Okay, so the, the capital of Israel was Samaria and the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. So Micah is saying, what was the sin of Jacob, which he's using as a synonym for Israel? It was Samaria and the false worship that happened there. What was the sin of Judah? It is Jerusalem and the desecration of the temple that happened there, that the kings had set up high places and worshiped false gods instead of worshiping Yahweh. Okay, so this is a poetic way of saying the northern kingdom's sin is the false worship that's happening in Samaria. And the southern kingdom's sin, if you think you're better than them, you've got the same problem. False worship. Worship of false gods. Okay, so the point of Micah is the destruction that came in the northern kingdom in 722 BC is going to come on the southern kingdom. Because you're guilty of the same sin. So look out. What was this written? Micah? Um, it was written about the same time as Isaiah. So 8th century BC. 700s. He tells you, and he dates it by telling the kings that are ruling while he prophesies. It's the same as the ones in Isaiah. Okay, number four. We're not going to get to the one at the well, I don't think. It's not my fault. Pastor preached too long. Um... Number four, does God get tired? Yes and no. This is really an interesting passage. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. Who is Jesus in the Gospel of John? At what point? The entire Gospel. He's God. Is he part of God? Is he half God? No, he's fully, 100% God. And yet, he's tired. So, can God get tired? No. It's one of the prerequisites to being God is you can't get tired. Because God can't be affected by outside forces like hunger, Weariness, energy. Does God have a store of energy that gets depleted that he has to restore? No, he's God. One of, the, one of the most important ideas of being God is that you're not affected by anything. Right? So how can Jesus be fully God and get tired? Because what? Right. Remember, we went over this. How many Jesuses you got? One. One. How many natures? Two. How many, how many gods you got? One. How many persons? Three. You can't divide the substance. You can't confuse the persons. The second person of Trinity became incarnate in the person Jesus of Nazareth, and that is one Jesus who is the Christ. How many natures? Two. Two. What nature is active in Jesus while he is tired? Both. In everything that one Jesus does, how many natures are doing it? Two. In everything this one Jesus does, how many natures are active in doing it? Two. 
I'm going to keep saying it and tell you follow along. In this one Jesus <laughs> and everything Jesus does, which how many natures are active in doing it? Two. Two. What are those natures? Divine and human. Now, the way we talk about this is sometimes it is very evident which nature you see acting. The phrase we use for that in theology is according to the. So we see Jesus being tired according to the human nature. According to his human nature. Does that mean his divine nature isn't working at this point? No. It just means that we see this according to his human nature. He walks on water according to his divine nature. Is his human nature walking on water? Yes, because everything that Jesus does, he does according to two natures, the divine and the human. Can God die on a cross? Yes. Yes. Very good. <laughs> because Jesus does it, right? When Jesus does it, does his divine nature do it? Yes. Does his human nature do it? Yes. Okay. This is called, this is a bonus, the gainus apotelismaticum. Yeah, apotelismaticum. Okay, what this means is, so that, you know what a telesma is? It's the goal. We talked about this in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, Jesus is the beginning and the goal of our faith. That's a, that's a telus, right? It's the goal. So everything he does toward the goal of our salvation, every action that Jesus takes to the goal of our salvation, he does in one person with both natures. So everything that Jesus does, he does according to he does with both natures acting. So when Jesus died on the cross, it's something that you would think that's according to his human nature. Yes, but his divine nature participates. You, you, you read this today in church. Go to Colossians chapter 2. You read this today in church. This entire theology. Paul says it almost as good as I do. See how long my sermon could have been? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was waiting for this part. <laughs> Colossians 2.9. This is one of the passages that is explicit in this. Colossians 2.9. Colossians. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? So we're in John, then you go to Acts, and then you go to Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In the books of Paul. If you're looking for, if you haven't done devotions lately, if you're looking for a way to start devotions, read Colossians. It's four chapters. It'll take you four nights. You're done with the whole book. Start again. In a week, you've read the whole thing almost twice. It's a fantastic little book. It's amazing. It's almost like it's divinely inspired. All right, Colossians 2.9. Someone read that for us. Colossians 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells Did you catch that? The him is Jesus. It, right, right before it says Christ, okay? For in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity, that's all of God, 
dwells bodily. We're going to read in John chapter 4 that God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. They don't have a body. And yet it says in Colossians that the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Jesus. See, that's what we're getting at in all this, is that this one person, that he has a body, right? But he has two natures. So he is fully God and fully man. And this Jesus, in the state of humiliation now, right? So while he's on earth, he's in the state of humiliation, which is the voluntary restraint for the full use of his divine nature. He still has it, just doesn't use it. He can be hungry. It says this in Matthew, one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. It says, he didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And then what does Matthew say? And he was hungry. And we go, well, duh. That's what happens when you don't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. But the remarkable thing about this passage is that Jesus and Matthew has just been baptized. The Father was there. The Spirit was there. And the Father said, this is my Son. This is the Son of God. And it's, it actually is shocking that he would be hungry. And the point of the Gospel of Matthew is that he is now, remember the gospel, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. So this is the beginning of his vicarious atonement. Vicarious meaning staying in our place. So Jesus is now taking on the form of a servant and actually starting to suffer in the place of sinners. This is in the state of humiliation, right? So we see in John 4, Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, is tired. How can that be? One God, three persons. The second person is the person of Jesus Christ. You have one Jesus with two natures, divine and human. And in everything Jesus does, both natures are active. But sometimes you see one more clearly, and in that case you say, according to his human nature. Does that make sense? There will be a quiz. Yes? Both. Mm-hmm. Did he essentially choose to be tired? He okay, good, very good. So, so yes, he yes, to not be tired? yes. <laughs> he voluntarily restrains from using the full—it's uh, hard to say—full power of his divine nature. So, he part of his humiliation, part of his following the will of the Father, is that he allows himself to suffer the things that every human suffers except sinning. So it says that that he knows what we go through because he faced everything we faced, except he never sins. So yes, he chooses to be tired. He chooses to be hungry. He chooses to be thirsty. He doesn't have to be. Right. Yeah, and, 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 and this is at the end of the story. We're going to read this too. The disciples are like, okay, we got food. He's like, I got food. You don't know anything about my My food is to do the will of Father. See, so he's actually choosing. This is part of his love for us is that he chooses to go through what we go through, to suffer what we suffer, except he doesn't sin. Does that make sense? This is part of the gospel. It's not just he came and he, he was God on earth for a while and he died on a cross. No, he actually went through a human life and chose to suffer just like you suffer. He's sad. Jesus gets sad. 
He wept. He's troubled. Jesus is troubled. How can God be troubled? Right? He prays. Why would God pray? All these, you know, all these things. It's his willingness to take on our nature. And that's why when you say, I'm going through this and you pray, like Pastor tells us in his sermon, he's got to go preach again. Um, but when, when Pastor tells us in his sermon today about prayer, you're not, you are praying to a God who actually does know what you're going through. Because Jesus actually willingly went through it. So yeah, he chose to. Does that make sense? All right, we got to get going. Any other questions? We didn't get very far. But we did cover all of God. So that's pretty good. We did an entire section, which is pretty good. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are wearied and we are tired. And in this life, we face many things that we can't understand and can't control and can't overcome. So we thank you for once again the good news that our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have one who knows what we are going through, who faces everything with us, and yet lifts us up so we may join with him in your heavenly glory. Teach us to live our lives trusting in our Savior, Jesus, serving as he serves, loving as he loved, but most of all, knowing that he is our God and because of him that we are yours, your dear children. So, dear Heavenly Father, be with us this week. In Jesus' name. Thank you all.